Now, they couldn't have changed the vote, but to even make a vote, they have to have a quorum. I don't know whether it's 75% or whatever it is, but uh, they have to have a quorum, and without the Republicans there, there's not a quorum, enough of a majority to even do a vote like it's been here on this property, where if you don't have a two-thirds majority, you can't vote on anything, the way it's set up at the moment. Uh, people go ahead and do their thing. And the governor has essentially said she's going to go ahead and do her thing. But some of those Republican Senate members have actually even left the state, and now the governor has said that she is going to send state troopers out after them and bring them back to the Senate chambers so that their bodies are there so she can have a quorum and get what she wants. Now, I don't, I think I briefly glanced at what the particular issue is on the table, but it has to do ultimately with environmentalism and Agenda 21 of the United Nations. There is, Oregon is a test case for the United Nations and the New World Order. And there has been a great environmental movement going on there for a long time. And the reason I bring this up is that there is apparently not only a political explosion going on in Oregon at the moment, but also this morning it's been reported that there have been six earthquakes right off the coast of Oregon uh, in that dangerous subduction zone out in the Pacific, not very far out. And uh, three of them were over four, and three of them were over five. 5.4, I think, was the strongest of the six, uh, at least according to an early report. Now, the way this is developing is in 1910, some legislation was introduced uh, which would have uh, expedited the environmental movement. Now, what that means is that there are those who worship Mother Earth, Gaia they call her, and uh, they believe that Mother Earth is God. Now when this all comes down, I'm going to give you sort of the end of this story before we get there, but if there is a major earthquake off Oregon uh, any time in the near future, they say it will destroy everything up to the foot of the Cascades. Uh, as far east as I-5, I-5 is just west of the Cascade. So the mountains there would stop it, but a tsunami that large would take out Portland and Salem and Eugene, uh, possibly even Tacoma and Seattle, depending on where the tsunami goes, and across the Pacific into Asia as well. So it is a very, very dangerous subduction zone that is there uh, that runs... Well, part of it runs up through Seattle, Tacoma. Part of it runs out off the coast. But if that happens with this environmental stuff on the table right now politically in Oregon, I think that environmentalists around the world are going to blame it on all of those who resist population reduction and the environmental movement. Because Mother Earth will have said, by her actions with an earthquake, that the population needed to be reduced. Now, that's my deduction and my thought on the matter. Uh, 
because they've got to issue in their Agenda 21, which is basically that you move everybody out of the country and into the cities where they can be controlled and population can be reduced by 90%. That is their avowed goal and purpose, as stated by several of our leading politicians, George H.W. Bush being one of them, and others since. Now, in 1971, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation donated half a million dollars to either the University of Oregon or, Universe, or Oregon State, I, f I forget which, I just read the article quickly, uh, to push this agenda. Uh, and Rockefeller, of course, is tied in with the UN and the New World Order crowd. So this is being pushed in Oregon for quite some time. The idea is to get all ranchers, farmers, and loggers out of the woods and into the cities. That is a stated policy of Agenda 21 of the United Nations. They've moved it back and call it Agenda 2030 now, uh, based on they haven't gotten it all done yet. So who knows how quickly some of this will happen. But the reason it didn't pass in 1910 is that two senators stood up and were very extremely against what was happening. Now let's jump forward to the standoff in the Malheur uh, Sanctuary in Oregon a few years ago uh, where the environmentalists who are involved with the Malheur Refuge had a standoff against constitutionalists and ranchers who wanted the rights of the ranchers to be recognized. The Hammonds up there as residents had been arrested for having a controlled burn on their own property, and it got out of control and burned over into the BLM or I think into the refuge itself. I'm not sure of the details now, but it must have endangered some birds and uh, water plants or something. Uh, so there was a big standoff over it, and they arrested the Hammonds and put them in jail over an accidental overburn. Uh, if you've been through there, it's just desert. I'm sorry. It didn't destroy much. Uh, but they made a big deal out of it. So these people who are supporting uh, rural America, uh, agriculture, and so on, uh, gathered there to stand off against the BLM and the feds and the state of Oregon for the rights. Now, Lavoie Finnicum, who is a neighbor of ours here about a mile, mile and a half away across the field, a man I know or knew um, fairly well, had several conversations with him in depth about the U.S. Constitution and the problems that are going on in this country. And my opinion of Lavoie is that he knew more about the U.S. Constitution and our rights and freedoms than 99 point some odd percent of Americans. He was that well versed. He had written a book. Uh, Lavoie had never had a traffic ticket in his life. He had never gone against any authority in any way. Why was he murdered? Now, they were in the standoff, and he and a party of people who were with him in his pickup, and I know one of them from uh, from Kanab over here, and her son 
not too long after that, was blown up in his lab at home uh, in a fire of suspicious origin soon after Lavoie was killed. But Lavoie and the party, including, uh, can't say her name now, uh, here from Kanab, she was in the pickup there that day as well, and I've talked to her since. We're on the way to a different county to ask for help uh, from a sheriff in another county who was uh, not for this environmental New World Order movement to get help from them. Well, they had about 30 patrol cars out there. They had a drone who filmed all this. I don't know whether it's an FBI or an Oregon State drone. Uh, but it was billed as a routine traffic stop. He was not speeding. And when they got to that point, they had these cars lined up back in the woods. Not the woods, I guess, but back out of sight and behind the hill or whatever. Snow on the ground and a drone already in position so that when his pickup came by, they stopped it, and there was a standoff there, and finally he got out of his car, you've seen the film, I suppose, held his hands up, and they started shooting him. One hand went down because of the shot that hit him in the side, and then he pulled it back up. They said he was reaching for a gun. No, he wasn't. He had his hands in the air, his hand went to his side, not to his pocket, when the bullet hit, and then back up in the air, and they continued to shoot till he fell down. He was absolutely cold-blooded murdered right there by the Oregon State Police with the FBI as their cronies. He had done nothing. He'd never had a traffic ticket in his life, was stopped, got out of the truck, and shot to death. Why? Because the U.S. Constitution is hated today by the powers that be. They want it removed, and in the courts they are very, very quickly making it toothless. They're trying to get our guns, which the Constitution uh, says clearly that we can own. And every time that a country has had its guns taken away from its citizens, it has been followed by genocide. Every time in history, several times now, Russia... Uh, other places. So, Lavoy Finnegan was the most outspoken and the most knowledgeable about the U.S. Constitution and the rights of farmers and ranchers and loggers and anyone who dwells in the country uh, of anyone there. He was a threat to them, and the threat was removed. Then they showed film of it. They planned... To film it. They had the drone there to do it. This thing was planned. It wasn't a routine traffic stop. And then they showed the film. And you know what? They got away with it. They showed the film, I believe, on purpose to show that they could get away with it. Now that's something 20 years ago you, wouldn't, you would have destroyed every film around because you wouldn't have wanted everybody to know that 30 cars can converge on one car and shoot the driver when he gets out of his car with his hands up. But they wanted to show the nation that this can now be done. And your rights are gone. And the Constitution is gone. Lavoie stood up for the United States Constitution 
and died for it. Meaning that the U.S. Constitution is utterly worthless to the powers that be today. And the rights and freedoms that it guarantees you are no longer there. Now, this is what is going on in Oregon. They are pushing Agenda 21 and now Agenda 2030 in Oregon as a test case for the rest of the states. So it's not just a little squabble over some innocuous bill that this is about. It's something very, very important that the Republicans walked out on because they're not greenies or uh, bunny huggers or tree huggers. They're baby huggers, if you will. Uh, that's a new one. I just coined a phrase, baby huggers. Those who are against abortion. Yeah, they're baby huggers instead of tree huggers. But the whole environmental movement is to get rid of babies, to get rid of people, to reduce the population by 90%. So Mother Earth can rest in peace without human problems. Now, I understand we've polluted the planet. That was wrong. And God said, woe be to those who pollute the earth. So he has his hand in as well. And he's against what Satan and man has done to the earth. But he is not into what Satan is, and that is his goal since Adam and Eve is to destroy every human being who has ever walked and talked. Or not walked and not talked even by killing millions of babies. And now they can even kill them after they're born in some places. So watch Oregon. Portland is a total mess, I guess would be the way to say it, politically and in every other way. And they have even said recently that uh, no longer will the Portland police answer calls about theft or burglary or that type of thing in the city. They don't have enough people to, to handle it, so they're just going to let mayhem occur. Won't even answer the calls. So it's breaking down very, very rapidly in that state and in its main city, Portland. So I, I wanted to bring you up on that because even though we're not talking about news a great deal, and I very rarely get into something quite like this uh, before we get to the Scriptures, which are far more important, uh, this is important to the prophecies in the Scriptures and what's happening in this country. And uh, it is escalating very, very rapidly. So let's see what happens off the coast of Oregon. I mean, they're fearing the big one and have been for quite some time, and you see articles about it. But this is an unprecedented swarm, evidently, of six earthquakes in one morning that big off the coast. And they're anticipating that it could be getting ready to set off a big one. So uh, political earthquakes and physical earthquakes combined up there are at least something worth watching. So uh, I've got a son that lives up there <laughs> west of Portland. <laughs> and my thought to him is maybe you better get out of there uh, for several different reasons. But he's going to do what he's going to do, like all of our kids. 
Anyway, let's get back then into 2 Corinthians, uh, where we left off last time. I got down to chapter 10 and verse 5. And uh, as, a, as a brief review, Paul is, had been dealing with in 1 Corinthians the, uh, some problems there in the congregation. And then they partly obeyed, and then they went a different direction. They went from one ditch to the other. Uh, they were accepting the sins of a man. And then when he repented, they would not accept him because they still remembered his sins, that they had been chastised for not uh, putting out. So he went through a lot of doctrinal issues and so on in 1 Corinthians, and then he comes back in 2 Corinthians and says, hey, this man repented. He quit doing what he was doing. You better accept him back. And there was another issue there whereby they were supposed to be preparing a shipment of food for those in need in other areas, and in Jerusalem in particular, uh, and had been asked, as had all the churches, to prepare food to send so that their brethren would not starve. And then Paul goes through quite a <clears throat> bit of time here to explain about attitude and approach and how God loves a willing and a ready mind and how we should be willing to give and to serve and so on. So he speaks a great deal about attitude. I think last week we talked about how he loved a cheerful giver and so on in chapter 9 and uh, was urging them to have an attitude of giving and loving and kindness and sharing. So he's spending a, a lot of time on that. Then he comes down in chapter 10 and he says that he is going to chide them some more in meekness and in the gentleness of Christ to try to help them see what they needed to see about themselves. And in so doing, then, he goes on and talks about how we tend to walk by the flesh instead of by the Spirit, uh, but we don't war after the things of the flesh. Uh, people here on this earth war about things of the flesh. We appear to be about to go into a war with Iran over wars of the flesh, oil and money. And uh, it will ultimately result, I think, in World War III, because I think Daniel, Daniel 8 tells us clearly <coughs> that we will destroy the horn of the Persians or Iran and then have our own horn broken. So what is a, appearing to now be about to happen over there, it's come close a few times and backed off, and it may yet again, who knows, but it looks more serious this time. But we don't want the petrodollar destroyed in the U.S. reserve dollar as the dollar is a reserve currency of the world. And we've destroyed several countries to prevent them from selling oil for anything but dollars. And now the Iranians are selling uh, Russia and China, uh, especially China, oil for gold or yuans. And the neocons and the military complex in Washington can't stand that because they've had hegemony over all of this for a long time. So they want war with Iran. And we may even be behind these things that we're blaming on Iran as false flags instead of something coming from Iran. Who knows? It could be either way. But it's leading to war over things of the flesh. We're not involved in the deal up in Oregon. 
we're not involved in the deal in the Middle East because God tells us we're ambassadors for Christ in His kingdom and that His lovely dwellings are what we are to be looking to, not the physical things of this world. But Paul is making the same statement here. We're not warring after the things of the flesh. Materiality, which is the goal of most Americans, their top goal, is not our goal. So the things of the flesh uh, we use. We eat, we drink, we use the things of the flesh, but they're not our goal and purpose, are they? Our goal and purpose is the kingdom of God and to be a part of that and to rule the world with Christ with a rod of iron and love. So the weapons then of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty, verse 4, through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And the Word of God and the power of God are going to pull down all the strongholds of man and of Satan and make them into nothing and bind Satan and put him away so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's what we're warring for. And he tells us that uh, it is the Spirit and power of God that we need. He says in verse 5, casting down imaginations. People have evil thoughts, evil imaginations uh, about others. He says, you get rid of those. And every high thing, or that is prideful or egocentric thing, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Worldly wisdom, worldly stuff, worldly logic, worldly philosophy. All those things that are vain and of ego are to be put down. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now what does it mean to revenge disobedience? Disobedience does what? It kills you. The wages of sin is death. So disobeying God and disobedience brings death. And when we repent and obey God, then he removes the penalty of sin, which is death, and that is his vengeance against sin and death, is by removing the penalty through the blood of Christ. So it is through our obedience that we achieve sanctification and ultimately transformation and glory in God to become God-beings and the bride of Christ. So that fulfills obedience, whereas death fulfills disobedience. So God will revenge through Christ's blood all of our disobedience. He says this is what it's all about, getting away from the world and Satan's system and disobedience to God and beginning to obey so that we can move forward to salvation. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? Most people, all people, tend to do that. We see something, and it appears a certain way to us. And we judge by that. 
I just got an email from someone who accused me of things that I haven't been accused of before so far, uh, that they have none of the facts whatsoever. They don't know anything that's going on. They looked at some things and says, that appears to be this. And so accused me of this. And they have no clue. There are only two people who know the things that they're talking about and money and whatever else is involved because they think I'm taking money from someone, a widow at that. And I haven't taken one dime from a widow. Don't plan to. But they don't know. They just look and think, oh, this must be what's going on. That is wicked imaginations and people looking on some outward appearance and saying, oh, I know what's going on. No, I'm not stealing tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars from anybody. Sorry. Get your facts right before your imagination runs away with you and you judge by what you think could possibly have happened or be happening. Do you judge by outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, a man standing there and he says, I belong to Christ, I'm converted, I'm a member of God's church. That's his position, okay? That's what Paul's saying. He trusts in himself, believes within himself that he belongs to Christ. Let him of himself think this again, think some more about it, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. He isn't the only one standing there who says, I am of Christ, who is of Christ. Paul's telling these people, there are people there among you who say they belong to Christ, but they don't believe that he, Paul, and Titus, and Timothy in the ministry that were working with them, were of Christ. Now, they had taken whatever things they wanted to look at, whatever outward appearance they saw, and he will touch on that a little bit down here, and decided that those men were false apostles and not true ministers because of what they thought they saw. And some of it, they may have seen, but they did not. But what they saw did not have sin involved. Paul will explain that here in a minute. But there was a problem there in the church. Remember back in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, he talked about how some are of Apollos, some are of Paul, some are saying, well, I'm only of Christ. I'm Christ's. So there was division. They were choosing their ministers from all those that God had sent to decide which one was their favorite and which one they wanted to listen to. And what does that do? It divides the church. Because some are of this man, some are of another man, and some are of no man, but I'm of Christ. I've seen people take that position many times. That was happening back then. So he says, we're Christ too. So don't look at appearances and think, I'm the only one here that's righteous, as some apparently were doing. 
Verse 8, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Eternal has given us for edification. Now, it says that he gave the ministry uh, for uh, the edification and the perfection of the saints and so on. That he had placed them there. Did Christ or did Christ not train twelve disciples and then make them apostles? save one that betrayed and then got replaced. Did he or did he not do that? And did those apostles then not go out and ordain other men into the ministry, into the other positions, not just of apostle, but of evangelist and pastor and teacher and prophet and so on? Did they do that? Did Paul ordain Timothy and Titus and some of those men in the local areas? Yes, they did. So God gave that authority through those apostles. And even told the Jews in Matthew 23, if you don't accept me and these whom I've sent, I will disfellowship you until you do. And the Jews as a whole have not accepted Christ or the New Testament ministry since. So in God's eyes, he's still got the whole Jewish nation disfellowshipped until they accept him. Now, some Messianics have thought that they have accepted Christ by becoming Messianic Jews, or Christian Jews, they call themselves, having accepted Christ, but they don't realize that by accepting Protestant doctrine, they've actually accepted the false Christ in Satan. But they'll learn. At least, they, at least they're headed the right direction, let's put it that way. So he says, for though I should boast somewhat more. Now, if you start claiming that you are a true minister of Christ, and as Herbert Armstrong said, the only one sent by God in 1900 years, you start pushing that somewhat and you meet resistance. Because... It sounds like boasting, it sounds like vanity and ego to people who judge by the outward appearance. But did God or did God not give Herbert Armstrong the knowledge that you and I now share? Yes, he did. And he was the only one he gave it to. Nobody else. And he proclaimed it through the Worldwide Church of God as it became for a long time. And God didn't give it anywhere else. But there came to be people who said, Herbert Armstrong wasn't given truth. I was. One noted evangelist from all the way back in Oregon, the Cole family. Wayne, uh, not Wayne, but uh, Raymond. uh, Held to the idea that Pentecost was on Monday and God was not revealing the truth to Herbert Armstrong. So he left the church, talked against Herbert Armstrong for the rest of his life, and pursued the Monday Pentecost and got a certain following, helped divide the church. Now it has become, I think, quite clear and obvious that Sunday has to be the day of Pentecost. It's just so very, very clear when you look at the Scriptures. But, see, he had better knowledge than God was giving Herbert Armstrong. 
Now, did God give Herbert Armstrong all knowledge? No. There were a lot of things he didn't understand of the day he died. But the basic truths, the basic understanding of salvation and why we're on this earth and the Sabbath and the holy days and why we were born and all those vital issues, salvational issues, were given to Herbert Armstrong in one way or another. But he came to have a lot of detractors. Ministers rebelled, people rebelled, and then those who were left in charge after he was probably murdered uh, dropped everything that he believed and went evangelical. Well, that's just the facts, brethren. Now, that was the kind of movement that was going on here in these brand new churches as people were splitting off and dividing, thinking that God given me better knowledge than Paul or Apollos is better or whatever. And, said, and some said, I'm above all ministers. When you say, I'm not of the ministry at all, I am of Christ, then you're saying that you are above all the ministers. That's what you literally say. I understand better than they do. I only answer to Christ. Now, we all answer to Christ. Yes, we do. We have a personal relationship to the Father through Him. I'm not saying you don't. But God did put the ministry on the earth for a particular reason, and you can deny it all you want, but Christ really did train His disciples, and He really did make them apostles, and He really did send tongues of fire and languages and begin converting people and having people that couldn't walk rise up and walk and dance and leap and jump and hug the apostles. He did do that, didn't He? It's all in there in the record. So God did establish a ministry for the purposes which Paul stated. And you know, Paul didn't just come out of nowhere either and say, I'm an apostle now. Didn't he get struck blind on the road to Damascus and grope around for a few days until he decided, I think I better do what Christ tells me. See, he accepted Christ. And then after he got out in the desert and got taught for three years, he knew what he was talking about. He had received instruction directly from Christ. So when he opens this next section here of his reasoning and logic with these people, he's saying, I should boast more about authority, not less. That's his plain statement which the Eternal has given us for edification. Not self-edification, but for edifying the congregation and teaching them what Christ had taught him out there in the desert and what he had also learned from Peter and James and John and the others and from the Old Testament Scriptures in his own reading. And not for your destruction. I should not be ashamed. He says, I... I shouldn't apologize for being a minister because God made me one so I could edify and teach you, not destroy you. 
Now, we have other problems, and that is that there were some ministers who did not use their authority properly and did overlord the people in Worldwide Church of God, and that created, well, I'll say insurmountable problems. Not surmountable, but insurmountable problems that continue to plague the church to this day because of the memory banks of people who were mistreated, abused, and misused. Now, we have to overcome that and realize that that was a problem and deal with it, overcome it. Now, he had the same problem back then. There are other places in Paul's epistles where he talked about ministers who had departed and that were false apostles and that were leading people astray and even talked about some who were outright enemies and named names of his within the congregation. So the problems we had in Worldwide <laughs> were extant back then just as real as they are or were today. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Human nature has always been the same since Adam and Eve plucked the fruit off the wrong tree and took on Satanism. It's not changed. And the only change that has occurred is when God's Holy Spirit has enacted some changes in a very few people since that time. Very few. There's been 60 billion on earth, as some estimate. Uh, could be only in the low hundreds of thousands of those who have known the truth and that God has reacted with. I mean, even here in the end time, maybe probably the biggest work that he's done uh, in working with people has been about 150,000 through worldwide. I don't think the early New Testament church got that big. Uh, I mean, Paul was still going to these different churches and meeting in people's homes. It wasn't very big. There weren't five, six, eight, ten, or a thousand people in a congregation. And there was no radio and television and printed word or anything else. Now, three and five thousand were uh, converted in just days after Pentecost there in Acts 2. But that didn't continue for very long. And there simply weren't people to take care of that. And that was in one location. Now, the rest of it, worldwide, it wasn't very big. I don't think it by any means could have reached what Herbert Armstrong was able to reach, and God began to convert as many as he did because he has an end-time work that needs 10% of that. So, really, have there been more than 100,000 ever converted? Probably not many more than that. At least 144,000 will have been by the time this is over. And that includes some from the Old Testament. So maybe two or three hundred thousand have been called, I don't know, through all history. And you know what? God always worked through men. Old Testament with the prophets, with Israel and the priests. New Testament with the apostles. In time with one who I think became an apostle, Herbert Armstrong. One sent by God to do a work. And I, he, he denied that a title for a lot of years. And then he finally accepted it and realized that he had been sent by God as the first one in 1900 years uh, to preach truth. 
So those who want to do away with the ministry or say we don't need one are way, way, way out in left field because that's the way God has always worked through men. Faulty, problematic, difficult, uh, various personalities, ways of doing things, different administrations, Paul says. But that's the way God works. And he's telling these people, you're going to have to accept this. God gave us this authority. To edify you, not to destroy you, and I'm not going to be ashamed about the authority that God has given me, he says. I'm going to use it for, your, for God's purposes. Well, what is God's purpose for the church? His purpose is that it be unified in love, without division, without splits, without schism. That's his goal for the church. Now, Satan's and man does not go along with that too well. But that's God's goal. So when Paul saw division and frustration and the destruction of his and others' authority, he had to deal with it in order to preserve the peace and the unity instead of let it all become divided as it's become now. It was unpreventable because Christ said, I am going to... Blow it out. Spew it out of my mouth. Because of apathy and Laodiceanism and self-righteousness. And that's what he's done. And now he is going to call 10% out of that who have repented of it and are willing to serve him and do his work of preaching the gospel around the world, which will start in just a few years. Hasn't been done yet. Because the end hasn't come. Herbert Armstrong's been dead 33 years now. Over. And the end didn't come. He wasn't the end time Elijah. He gave us a lot of truth, but they didn't restore all things. There's still, I'm sure, things that need restored. And they will be done. Or God will destroy all mankind. That's what he said in Malachi 4. So he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. God gave me the authority, and I'm going to use it to help you people... Get and stay unified. Now, verse 9, he gets uh, personal about it. But I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. He says, I have authority. I don't want to boast, although maybe I should, of what God has given me. And he mentions that some more later on in this chapter, I mean in this book, about how he had visions and so on. Uh, and he said, I'm going to tell you about it. And then he did. So he went on to claim even more than he is starting out with here because it appeared to be necessary in order to get their attention. So he says, uh, I'm really here to edify you, and I don't want to necessarily terrify you by letters because they had looked at his letters and judged by how they appeared. And they looked at him and judged by outward appearance as he appeared. So when he brings up looking on outward appearance here, he's not just talking about in general. He's talking about himself and appearances that he had that made people despise him. 
Now he's getting into it to tell you about it. Here are the, here are the outward appearances that I'm despised for, and you can't judge me by them, is the message he's trying to get across. Here's what they said about him. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So we know from other scriptures that he apparently had an eye problem or something that uh, made it difficult not only for him to see because he wrote with large letters, but also made him look bad, whatever that affliction was. Uh, and he also was not a good speaker. I mean, he was not pleasant to listen to, let's say. What he said was fine. But how he said it appeared weak and was not listenable, I guess, would be a word we might use today. People had difficulty listening to it. So his overall appearance from his eye problem, apparently, and his inability to speak in a uh, powerful, understandable, uh, charismatic, or whatever, effective way. They look down upon him for. So he says, yeah, I'm writing you some pretty strong letters, but they're saying that I'm weak and contemptible. Let such an one think this, that, such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will be we be also in deed when we are present. So he says, don't just look upon these letters as heavy threats. He says, I may not look too good, and I may not speak too good, and I'm accused of that. And maybe he actually didn't look as bad, and maybe he didn't speak as bad as some of them reported and said. You know, you can't believe everything that's said and reported. You really can't. But he did have some problems there, obviously, and they were picking on it and maybe making it bigger than it really was. So he says, in his defense here, yeah, my letters have been heavy and you think I'm weak and contemptible, but wait till I get there and you're going to find out that I'm going to speak with power whether you think I'm a good speaker or not. So don't let the rumors get you to thinking that, ah, it won't be any big deal if Paul gets here. He says, because I'm coming in power if you don't listen to what I'm telling you. And he's backing up what he said about his authority. So I'll be powerful indeed when I and my group, Titus or Timothy, whoever would be with him, arrive. For we dare not make ourselves of the number. Now what does that mean? The ministry was set aside or sanctified by Christ for a particular job. And they were not to just be categorized as, let's say, run-of-the-mill members. They were there in an authoritative position to do a job. And that is a very difficult position to be in. Now, if you've been involved with business at all, 
or you've observed big companies or whatever, you realize that there is almost invariably a difference between management and employees. There's always friction there. Because the bosses want this done, and they want it done their way, and the employees think it ought to be done this way. And the management says you ought to be paid this much, and the employee says I want to be paid that much. They're just built-in problems. And the military handles it by not, by not even letting the run-of-the-mill soldier even have anything to do with the officers for the most part. The officers have their own dining room separate. I don't know whether it's all that way anymore or not, but it used to be that way. So that they didn't mix at all. They had different areas they lived in and everything. Because the more they mixed, the worse it got. Familiarity can breed contempt. Or it can make problems that are there by nature, by the ruled and the rulers. But it can be made worse with too much familiarity. Now, there's a balance in there somewhere. The ministry is not to hold itself above everybody, but the ministry needs to respect the office it holds, and everyone else needs to respect that office as well, because God put it there for specific purposes. So there is, to some degree, even in the church, a management-employee divide, or an officer-noncom divide, or however you want to put it. Now, familiarity can breed love and respect and kindness and goodwill as well. Christ was quite familiar with John, who was familiar enough to lean on his breast when Christ would lean against a tree. That's stated in Scripture. So, but that was, in that sense, management. Christ and then the apostles with him are those who would become the apostles. So, the ministry can't say, I'm better than you. Because they're not. Just human beings trying to be part of the kingdom of God eventually. But put in a position of authority to help, to strengthen, to edify, to correct, and even to disfellowship, if necessary, in order to protect the church from division and trouble. So that is a living thing that we have to deal with it. Now, some people have problems with it, and therefore they just dismiss the ministry and say, I'm just going to serve Christ on my own. Well, maybe they'll get into the kingdom of God that way, and maybe they won't. But Christ tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together so much the more as we see the end approach. There in Hebrews 13. I think it's 13. So we are to be a body. Christ formed the church as a body. And he says you have to be part of that body. And if you're cut off from that body, then you shrivel and die. That's the analogy Christ uses through Paul. So you cannot be an independent Christian without shriveling up and dying Sooner or later, it will happen. You must be attached to the body that has the heart and the lungs and the brains 
and every part of the body that depends on each other. The finger cannot survive of itself. It's not attached to the hand. I've seen fingers and hands cut off, and they didn't live. They didn't make it. And you can't either. When you get away from the body, you will begin to slide backward. That was the problem Herbert Armstrong addressed in the very beginning. As soon as he started going out and having his little evangelistic or uh, tent meetings or whatever there in Oregon, uh, people would respond and do well, and, and it looked all good. Then he'd go back home, and it'd all fall apart because there was no one there to feed it, to nourish it, to keep it, to help it in authority. So he said, well, I've got to have help. And he was inspired to move to California and start a college so he could train a ministry. Now, we tried to hide from that. Well, it's a liberal arts college, and we're here to give you a good education on how to be a human being. Well, that's fine, and that was true. But it was really a ministerial school is what it was designed for because he needed help. And some of those guys came from being barely converted or not yet converted to college and four years later were sent out into the ministry. Some of them ordained already. Now they got away from that as a few years went by and they realized that was difficult and they did a little more training in the field by seasoned ministers and that had to be finally. But... If you're out by yourself, you slide backwards. I've seen it many, many times uh, with many, many people. It may not happen immediately, and it may be imperceptible almost, but it happens. You've got to be attached to the body. You cannot be an independent Christian no matter what you think. You can't say, well, I'm still in the church. Well, maybe you still are, but you won't be for very long because Satan and the world and your own human nature and gravity will overcome it in time. I know when my family was called back in the early 50s, we were out in West Texas and there was no other member other than my uncle within at least 130 miles and only one family there. And the rest were a long, long way away more than that. And we could go to the feast three times a year, which we did. But you couldn't grow. You weren't being fed. Yeah, you were getting the broadcast, but that wasn't enough feed to get you to grow individually. And I saw people out there who came into the church and were all excited and then began to shrink back and began to shrivel and weren't keeping things the way they ought to be keeping them for whatever reasons. So if you're not connected to the vine, you're in trouble. Now we've got a situation now where people are scattered all over the place and sometimes they're kind of on their own. But they need to be involved with a pastor somewhere or they will get left behind. Now, as it is, I was there with, uh, with one group as an employee for a while. 
And it had about 400 people at the time, and that remained for quite some time, seemed to stay that way. And then I've heard more recently it's dropped down to about 200 or so, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter in the long run in any case. But I've seen others, and there's people in the front door and out the back door, in the front door and out the back door, or in the back door and out the front door, whatever, however they get in. And it splits and divides and splits and divides like Christ said it would. But there are people running around looking, as it says there in Amos, and can't find. Looking and can't find. It's becoming a spiritual famine, not just that which is coming soon as a physical famine. So, God put the ministry here for a purpose. And you better be listening and be attached somewhere. Because on your own, you can't do it. You've got to be attached. <laughs> now, how's it going to turn out? We already know that story. We know God out of all these splits and individuals and everything that's out there, whatever form it is, He's going to find 10% who are willing to be faithful to Him, and He's going to call them to come and build a temple and build Jerusalem and uh, preach the gospel around the world as a witness. Now, who, what, why, where, when, and how? Those questions will be answered in time. But that's the story. I think we're learning some of those answers. Probably don't have them all yet. Anyway, he says, we dare not make ourselves of the number. We can't just be sitting in row five or whatever like everybody else. That didn't mean he was above the others. It just meant that he had a particular position to fulfill, and he was going to use the authority he had to fulfill it, and he was going to tell people what they must do. And he has been doing that all through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians now. And in all his apostles, he tells people what to do. Does he not? You know what people resent the most? Being told what to do. That's what people don't like. Unless they're converted. Unless they have the mind of Christ and are bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ and being humble instead of prideful. Then they desire to be told how to do and what to do. See, the Spirit of God is one of compliance and readiness and willingness and wanting to learn and wanting to be inspired, and wanting to be taught, that's the Spirit of God. Now, when you find yourself resisting, that's the Spirit of man. That's carnality. That's fighting with the weapons of the flesh. What I want, what my pride, what my ego will accept, and what it won't. Christ said there is no room whatsoever for pride, right? So what makes us not want to be told what to do? Pride. Ego. Because I am me and I will make up my own mind. All right. Go out in the world and do that. But you can't do that under God's conditions. He is the one who wrote this book and said, live by every word of it, right? Right? 
And there are a lot of things in this book that your human nature does not like. It hates the Word of God. It is contrary to it, according to God. The human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked on its own. And the only way that that can be changed is to come to have the Spirit of God and use the weapons of spirituality instead of the weapons of carnality. And then we can want to be inspired and taught and led because that's what sheep do. They follow the shepherd. Christ is the overall shepherd to follow, and he has sent other shepherds in the flesh to help lead his sheep and keep them from falling into the ditch and to bring them still waters that they might drink. That's what he's done. That's what we're to live with. That's all he's saying here. So he says, don't just judge me as a common man and say he's contemptible. Or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. So Paul says, I'm not going to compare, and the ministry's not going to compare themselves among some of you who are standing up and saying, I know better. I'm better. Paul's weak. He's contemptible. Follow me. Got some around here within almost fitting distance who are in that attitude. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Or in the Greek, it's more like become fools. He says, I cannot compare myself with you because God has given me a specific job to do and I'm in a different category as a result of the job. And then you have people among you who are lifting themselves up as if they should be the teachers, and they're the ones God is giving the correct knowledge to, instead of the ministry. And it's creating problems. And he says, when they compare themselves among themselves and measure each other and so on, they're uh, becoming fools. I saw, was it an Amos and Andy or the one of those comedy groups years ago on, on one of their no-talkie films. And it was a little bit about Hitler and Mussolini. And they were in the barber shop. They were sitting there, both getting their hair done. And one of them looked over at the other one and cranked his chair up a notch. And the other one looked over at the, at his, at the other one and he cranked his chair up two notches. And this went back and forth to see who could be the highest. It was kind of a cute little bit, but it certainly was all about human nature. That's what Paul's saying here. You're measuring yourselves among yourselves, and you're, you're comparing yourselves among yourselves. That's the total wrong comparison. That's human walking in the flesh. When we look at somebody else and think, I'm better than they are, and keep ratcheting it up back and forth, and competing with each other, and arguing and fighting with each other about who's right and who's wrong, why not just be humble 
and say it doesn't matter. Why argue and fight over it? Do you always have to win? Maybe we were taught that by a human world with human schools and human football teams where you always had to win. Got to compete. No, you were taught the wrong thing. You don't always have to win. Did Christ always have to win? Could he have called a company of angels down and destroyed those Jews and saved his life? Yeah. But for him, he didn't say a word. He took whatever they doled out to him, both psychological and physical. Didn't compete, didn't fight them. He let them do what they were going to do because he knew it had to be done. Now, there were times he fought for the right reasons, like the money changers in the temple. Then he grabbed a whip and ran their butts out of there. No ifs or buts about it. Well, buts about it, I guess. Because it needed to be done. But that wasn't his ego or his pride. He was defending the temple of God, not himself. There's no room for pride and ego. So he's saying, don't compare yourselves among yourselves. Now that's one of the most common human tendencies, really, that there is, is it not? What happens when you first meet somebody? You immediately begin to assess them. You'll look at height, you'll look at eye color, you'll look at hair color, you'll look at uh, legs, rear ends. You'll look them all over. What kind of person is this? They open their mouth. You'll begin to assess that person immediately by the thing, the way they say, what they say, how they say it. And you'll begin to form opinions about that person, won't you? Almost immediately, if not immediately. So for us to assess each other is automatic. Is it not? And we make, therefore, judgments almost instantly, that first impression, some kind of judgment. <coughs> this is a person I wouldn't mind seeing again, or this is somebody I would never want to see again. Now, if the first time you meet someone, they put a gun to your head out in the parking lot, your immediate assessment would be, I wish this person would go away and I'd never see them again to use a more dramatic example. Now, somebody else might come along and help you lift a sack of potatoes into the back of your car. <coughs> and you might immediately think, now, there's somebody I wouldn't mind seeing again next time I have potatoes. So you make judgments that quick by how somebody looks or acts. Now, is that wrong? No, I don't think there's any way you could avoid that. I mean, yeah, other than just turn your brain off. Because when you meet people, you immediately begin to get to know them. And you immediately make some judgments. Some of those you may change later as you get to know them better. For good or for worse. So that's not what he's talking about here. 
he says, that isn't a problem. The problem arises when you begin to commend yourselves or compare yourselves in a competitive way. And we do it in so many, many ways. And that's what arguments and fights are about. If there were not pride and ego, and everybody thinking, I have to win this, whatever it might be, there would be no fight. You know, there are people who like to bring things up and create problems. They will imagine something has happened, and then they will say it, and they will pit people against each other, and get them to fight. Why? Maybe they like fights. Maybe they like to watch other people fight. But there's always ego involved. I must be right. Why? Why not just say, you could be right, and walk off? Why do you need to stand there and try to prove you're right? That's just your ego and your vanity. When somebody brings up something you disagree with, it's, isn't it possible to say, well, I, I think I'll just agree to disagree with you. End of story. Let's move on to something else. No. Somebody sends us an email accusing us of something. We want to defend ourselves. Why not just say you got the facts wrong, but you got the right guy. I'm certainly not perfect. See ya. Why do we have to answer? Why do we have to give it recognition? If you give it recognition, it just gets worse and worse as you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you know what? Nobody wins. Everybody gets uptight. Everybody gets mad. Everybody has bad feelings about each other. And it just gets worse and worse. And pretty soon you're not speaking. Like around here, for instance. Because of pride and ego. And false goals and purposes. Whatever. Why not just say, hey, I'm leaving you alone. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to fight with you. Do your thing. Around here, I don't even acknowledge them. I meet them in traffic. I just look the other way or look straight ahead or don't even wave. I'm just pretending you're not there. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to fight with you. You take me to court. I'll go to court. I'll represent myself the best I can. But... Why would I need anything to do with you who are accusing me of all kinds of things like murder that I haven't done? I, I, I got no reason to fight with them. Got no reason to talk to them. Just ignore it. Won't go away until God makes it go away. But, but any time somebody tries to stir trouble or tries to bring up negativity, just ignore it. You don't have to get your ego and your pride up. Just ignore it. I remember one time that just came to mind when I nearly got myself beat senseless. I've never been in a physical fight with another human being, except playing with my brothers, maybe, probably since I was in third grade. And there was this guy up in Montana, wasn't in the church, who disliked me. And then he, I paid him to do something, plow my road of snow, and he plowed half of it and quit. But he wanted his full payment. And I said no. And after that, I was his enemy. I said, finish plowing the road, and I'll give you the rest of your pay. That's that, that simple. 
but he made me an enemy. Well, I walked into a bar uh, for whatever reason I went in there uh, in a little town nearby, and the bartender and he were the only guys in the bar. I don't remember why I went in there now, uh, doing business or something, I don't know. Or maybe I just went for a beer. I don't have any idea at this point. But there he was, and he was, that was his town, and that was his bar. And he began to goad me, and push at me, and call me names. And I'm standing there thinking, I could hit this guy, but he is a known bar brawler. And he knows how to fight, and he knows how to fight dirty, and I'm clueless. So if I swing one fist, I'm going to be down on the ground getting boot kicked until I'm senseless. Now my pride and my ego was telling me, don't let this guy do this to me, and don't let him call me those names. And some of them you might not even recognize. Everything in me said hit him anyway. And I finally swallowed real hard and walked out. And he and the bartender probably gave each other high fives and says, there's a yellow coward. Well, they might have been partly right. Because <laughs> I knew what would happen if I tried to fight and tried to win. I couldn't win with words. It would have gotten to fisticuffs. Why not just swallow it and walk away? Somebody accuses you of something, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to win. Just say, yeah, you could be right. And move on. Why does there have to be a fight? Why not just ignore it? Why do you answer that email? I used to have quit. Or if I do, it's in a very innocuous way that doesn't try to prove me right or them wrong. Because I've learned that you'll never win because they have their opinion and you're not about to change it. So why fight about it? Just move on. I'm out of time. So he's, he says it's just not wise. When you start lifting yourself up in pride, it leads to nothing but fighting and division and bad feelings and ruined relationships and friends that were friends aren't friends anymore. That's where it goes. So just quit it. Well, I think I'll quit there. Uh, well, let's, let's finish it right quick, down the end of the chapter. But we will not boast of things without our rulership or our measure or our province or what God has given us. Uh, God has give, had given him a measure of authority, in other words. But, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us. We don't want to overstep our authority, but we want to use it according to how God has given it to us. And he mentions rule here several times. He mentions it there, down in verse 16. Uh, I think there was another place here he used the same word. He was a ruler in the church. Some say there in Hebrews where it says, Obey those that rule over you. And they say, well, that word doesn't mean rule at all. Uh, and they say it means something else. And my answer to that is very simple. What about the one that says obey? How are you going to water that word down? 
obey those that have whatever it is they have over you, you're to do. So he says, we don't want to stretch it out beyond what God gave us, but we do want to do what he did send us here to do. Uh, For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. He says, that's what we're here for. We're not here to overlord you or to rule over you in a wrong way, but to use the authority and the power that God has given us for your good and to preach the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our limits or our rule or our authority. That is, of other men's labors. Uh, We're not here to compare ourselves with what other preachers are doing either. We're here to teach you. But having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged or uh, magnified or respected by you, according to our rule abundantly. So he says, we've been given this authority, and we hope you come to learn to respect it instead of being divided over us. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's authority of things made ready to our hand. We're here to do a job, not to compare ourselves with other preachers or people somewhere else. But he that glories, let him glory in the eternal. Not in how great he is, how spiritual he is, how much he understands more than Paul or Timothy or Titus does or whatever. Glory in the fact that God has called you and given you His truth through the ministry that He sent. What's so difficult about that? Well, what's so difficult is if you're being ruled by the laws of the flesh, your ego and your vanity will get in the way. But if you're being motivated by the Spirit of Christ, which is, as He said up here, meekness and gentleness, and not prideful, then you'll want to be taught. You'll want to be led. Instead of, as Christ described Ephraim and Hosea, a four-legged heifer pulling back against the rope. (laughs) That's not the way we're to be. For not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the eternal commends. It's God's judgment. So why do we ratchet our chair higher than someone else's? Why do we have to win every argument? Why do we have to prove that I'm in Christ only, and I'll serve Christ and I don't need the ministry? There are quite a few in the church or out of the church now who have that attitude. You can't have it. We're here to be humble, to be meek, to be simple, to be taught, to be inspired. Why do I spend this time? talking to you, because I want you to be fed the Word of God. I want you to learn to be more like God. I want me to listen to me and learn to be more like God. Me to listen to God's Word and you to listen to God's Word is what it comes down to. And I've been authorized to help you see things in here that you might not see, or to see things in yourself that you might not see that are ungodly and need to be removed and replaced, not with things of the flesh, but with things of the Spirit. And here he talks all the way through about attitude of meekness 
willingness, readiness is what we're to be. Humble and not always having to win, but learning to get along. Let's stop with that thought.